I love this church. I love you guys. I love your faces. I love your stories. I love where you come from. There are some of you in here who are struggling with weaknesses right now. And I want you to know that a lie from the enemy is that this is what is defining your season or your walk with the Lord. Pastor Nick and I were talking this morning, and it's very important for you to know that while the grace of God is not just a license for immorality, is not a license for immorality, that's not all that the grace of God is. The grace of God is our power. The grace of God empowers us to stay on the cross, but the grace of God is also our rest. God's grace gives us rest. So this morning, I want you guys to hear, if you could turn my microphone down just a little bit, I want you guys to hear and know that we're proud of you, that the Lord is with us. He's been faithful to us. He's answering our prayers. He's coming through. He's giving us strength. And he's taking us to where he's calling us to. Don't be discouraged. Don't lose courage. Don't lose hope. Don't give up. Keep persevering. God is bringing us through to victory. Let's stand up for just a second if you can, if you didn't sprain your ankle in the ice. Let's just shake off whatever it is right now. Let's in here. Come on, just shake it off a little bit. Join me in it. Just shake it off. Come on. God's got some things he wants to do tonight. Yes. Do a little MMA. Yes. All right, y'all have a seat. Come on. No funk right now in Jesus' name. Come on, the Spirit of God controls the atmosphere in here. Do you ever wonder why it's called the New Testament and the Old Testament? You ever wonder where that comes from? We were singing this morning and, and talking a lot about the mercy of God. This has nothing to do with the sermon. But uh, in Jeremiah 32... They get the idea of a new covenant. God says he's going to make a covenant where he takes away their sins and remembers their sins no more. The idea of the new covenant that has to do with Jesus taking away the sins of his people comes from Jeremiah, among other places. But he talks about the new covenant that he will make where he takes away the sins of his people. When the Lord returns, he's going to take away the sins of Israel and all Israel will be saved. That will happen when he returns. What's that? 31. What verse in 31 are you seeing? 31, 31. So watch this. He says, 
In verse 31 of chapter 31, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least of them to the greatest. The good news is that when the Lord returns, he will take away all the sins of his people and they will all know the Lord. No one will have to learn. They will all know. Has that happened yet? All the house of Israel and Judah, do they know the Lord right now? Has he taken away all the sins of Israel and do they all know him without having to learn? No, that has not happened yet. But do we know the Lord and has he taken away our sins? Then somehow we get to be included in that new covenant. We're a people who were not previously a people, but somehow we get to be brought into that covenant. That's amazing because I wasn't, I'm not a blood descendant of Abraham, right? And this promise was made to the house of Israel and to the house of Judah. But we get to be included in it through Jesus. Right? But we're still waiting for the fulfillment of this covenant. And he will fulfill it completely when he returns and all Israel is saved. That's where the idea of the new covenant comes from. Or New Testament. So when you think of New Testament... Remember Jeremiah 31. He also talks about what he'll do in 32 and 33 as well. So if you want a refresher on New Testament or New Covenant, go and look. The promise was originally made to the people that he began with and the unconditional covenant that he made with Abraham. Do you all remember that? He put Abraham to sleep and then he himself moved as a flaming torch through the animals that were cut in half. He made a covenant with Abraham, but he put Abraham to sleep while he was making that covenant with him. And so he made it unconditionally, meaning no matter what Abraham did, that covenant would last forever. The Mosaic covenant was not unconditional. That was where he gave the law. The Mosaic covenant was, if you do this, then I will do this. And gave them the terms to stay and remain in the land that he had given them. The Davidic covenant that he gave had to do with the Messiah who would come and would rule over all the people. And it would come through the line of David. That was a promise that was given to David. Right? And so when we think about the new covenant, we get to be included there. But that new covenant is still made with the original people. Why is that important? Because our God is a faithful covenant keeping God who is able to finish what he starts, right? That's important for us to know because if the story is, well, Israel started, but they rejected Jesus. So God did away with them and has now focused on white Gentiles. That's not as good of the news. Why? Because God tried and then he failed. He started building something, but was not able to complete it. But that's not our God. Our God is able to finish building what he started. And in fact, when it's done, we'll look back and see that Jesus was the cornerstone and the capstone, the beginning 
and the end. The first thing that it was all built off of and the last thing that will complete it all. And then he himself will submit to the father so that God may be all in all. Do we see that? Okay. Let's pray. Let's go to Genesis 41. Oh man, we have so much to be thankful for. Our God is a good God. He's a faithful God. So we're going to be in Nehemiah 5 today. And we're going to be talking about what it means to display righteousness in our behavior, in the way that we treat one another, in the way that we are towards one another. This morning when we're remembering that he forgives sins, when we're talking about his mercy and his love, when we truly grasp that down at the deepest part of who we are, it provides us with security. Right? One of the things that I loved about the daddy-daughter dance was when I, took, uh, when I took my girls there, I knew that I was showing them how a man should treat them. I knew that I was showing them love. And, and I knew that that was providing them with security. Now, what does that security ultimately translate into? It means when someone comes along and treats them differently, they'll recognize, oh, that's not right. You should not be treating me that way. That's not the way my father treats me, right? Or when I show them how to love and be generous and be selfless, they then will model my behavior and go and be generous and selfless towards others. Right? Because they're secure in their identity. If they hear from their father and believe it at the core of who they are, when their father tells them, you are so beautiful and you're so smart and so funny. I love being around you. I love spending time with you. What they'll get in their heads and in their hearts is that I'm fun to be around. I am smart. I am beautiful. And then when someone tells them differently, they'll go, that's a lie. My dad told me I'm beautiful. My dad told me I'm smart and fun to be around. And gosh darn it, people like me. <laughs> but what the father speaks to his children becomes their frame of reference. It becomes their reality. It dictates the way that they live, the way that they behave and treat each other, the way that they see themselves. One of our problems is that we don't know what the father says about us, or we go back and forth about whether or not we believe it's true. If we truly understood how the father saw us, we wouldn't be afraid to step out in faith. We wouldn't get so bogged down when we fail or make mistakes or sin or mess up. We wouldn't think that any situation was hopeless. We wouldn't think that we're on our own. And we would never wonder whether or not he has plans for us that are good. If we truly knew. But our problem is we don't. So today we're going to dig a little bit into his heart. And the ultimate goal is to understand a little more how the father feels about us. So that we can be secure in our identity. 
so that when we go out there and experience trials of various kinds, instead of being bogged down, confused, or distraught about it, we will actually rejoice because we'll say, oh, my father told me that this would happen. And then my father said that while it's happening, this is the way that I was supposed to behave and treat other people. And then my father said that after it's over, this is what will happen and what will be mine if I act this way during it. Security in our identity as his children, as his beloved. Because on a whole other level is what I speak over my wife. By the time that a woman becomes a wife, right? She's gone from being a girl who has listened to her daddy and her mommy, whatever they've said, and has absorbed the things that she's heard around her. And now she has grown up into a bride. What type of wife will she be? Well, that depends on how she sees herself. That depends on what truth she knows and understands and believes. Who do you think it's easier to influence about what the truth is? A little girl or a grown woman? A little girl. Her identity is still being formed. We are the bride of Christ. And yet we also are sons and daughters. We are growing up into maturity. That's the mystery. Right now, we're growing up into maturity. It's important for us to understand where we've been, where our family has been, which is, this is the story of where our family has been. Okay, that's what this is. It's the story of where our family has been. When we can understand those things, battles that people like us have faced in the past and how the Lord has shown them his truth, we can learn from that and then fight against the lies that we believe because how many of us in here have experienced things that are contrary uh, to this? We've heard lies that, that combat the truth that we read about in here. And so we're wrestling with that. So we can go back and we can see the lies that they've believed and then what it cost them. And then we can read about the truths and then say, no, that's a lie. I'm not going to believe that anymore. I'm going to choose to believe what's true and become more and more secure in our identity. So this morning, what we're going to read about is we're going to read about the way that when we're not secure in God's provision, when we're not secure in God's plan, the way that that will flesh itself out amongst the family of God. So in Genesis 41, in verse 57, we know there's a famine in the land says, and all the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Look at 42.2. So Jacob is talking to his sons and he says, why do you keep looking at each other? He continued. I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Remember that phrase so that we may live and not die. Look at Genesis 47. In verses 19 through 24. So everybody goes down to Egypt. And who's in charge of Egypt during this time? Joseph. So Joseph sets aside grain to be able to feed everyone. Look in verse 19. Why should we perish before your eyes? We in our land as well. Buy us in our land in exchange for food. And we with our land will be in bondage to Pharaoh. Sounds like a dangerous phrase, doesn't it? We will be in bondage to Pharaoh. But what's the alternative? Death. Because they won't have food 
to eat. Give us uh, seed so that we may live and not die. Did you hear that? And that the land may not become desolate. So Joseph bought all the land in Egypt for Pharaoh. The Egyptians, one and all, sold their fields because the famine was too severe for them. The land became Pharaoh's. And Joseph reduced the people to servitude from one end of Egypt to the other. However, he did not buy the land of the priests because they received regular allotment from Pharaoh and had food enough from the allotment Pharaoh gave them. This is why they did not sell their land. Joseph said to the people, now that I have bought you and your land today for Pharaoh, here is seed for you so that you can plant the ground. But when the crop comes in, give a fifth of it to Pharaoh. The other four fifths you may keep as seed for the fields and as food for yourselves and your household and your children. So who did a fifth of the grain belong to? Pharaoh. Who did their lives belong to? Who did their fields belong to? About their houses? Pharaoh. He had control of everything. But why was that okay in this scenario? Because then they would die if they didn't. So they sold themselves into slavery so that they could have food to eat. Let's go to Nehemiah 5. By the way, is that ideal? Having to sell yourself into slavery to have food to eat? Not ideal. Not an ideal situation. In Nehemiah 5, verse 1, says, Now the men and their wives raised a great outcry. A great outcry. The men and their wives raised a great outcry. Against who? Their Jewish brothers. Some were saying, We and our sons and daughters are numerous. In order for us to eat and stay alive, we must get grain. Sound a little bit like Egypt? Let's keep going. Others were saying we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our homes to get grain during the famine. Sounds a little more like Egypt. Still others were saying we've had to borrow money to pay the king's tax on our fields and vineyards or future crops. Although we are of the same flesh and blood as our countrymen, and though our sons are as good as theirs, yet we have to subject our sons and daughters to slavery. Some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but we are powerless because our fields and our vineyards belong to others. So we've been reading about Nehemiah. Where are they living right now? In Jerusalem. But what is it, where does it sound like they're living? In Egypt. Who is the ruling power in Jerusalem right now? They are. They have been given sovereignty by the king of Persia. He's given them the ability to rebuild. All they have to do is pay taxes, just like everyone else. But they have the ability to rule and govern themselves. In fact, in this chapter, Nehemiah talks about being made governor. So he's able to govern. And yet, what's going on? Well, the people's lives look a lot like they did back in Egypt. When they had to sell everything, including themselves and their children and their future income, just to get grain to live. Was this God's intention for the people in the city where his name is? To have to sell themselves? To be able to eat? For their future crops to already be given away before they even come in? 
to live in famine? Was that the intention of the Lord? No, but that's what's happening. What we see in Exodus 3, let's go there, is that as a result of this treatment, the Israelites cry out because they begin to be taken advantage of. So the Israelites are being taken advantage of by the Egyptians in Egypt. And what we see in verse 9, and now the cry of the Israelites has reached me. This is God speaking to Moses. The cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. I'm going to skip ahead and I'm going to tell you what that word is. That word, cry out or outcry, as we saw it in Nehemiah, is sa'ak. T-S-A-A-Q-A-H. Sa'ak. And we see that the people are crying out to God because of the oppression of the Egyptians. But now, almost a thousand years later, they're in Jerusalem... And they're crying out, not against some foreign power, but against their own brothers. They're crying out against their Jewish brothers. That's the reality that they're living in. So when the people cry out, how does God respond in Exodus? He sends Moses to deliver them. Do you see that? Y'all can talk to me this morning. Yeah. What we see in Psalm 912, flip there real quick. Psalm 912 says, For he who avenges blood remembers. He does not ignore the sa'ak of the afflicted or the cry of the afflicted. And so we see that the people cried out from Egypt and the Lord heard their cry and then sent a deliverer. The people are crying out in Nehemiah 5 against their own Jewish brothers. But Psalm 912 says that the Lord hears the cry of the afflicted, the outcry of the afflicted. We see elsewhere this same word for cry out or outcry comes from Esau after Jacob steals his blessing and Esau cries out. We see that when the Lord strikes down the firstborn of Egypt, that all of the Egyptians cried out. We see that this comes from a very bitter place of anguish. And there are people that are being afflicted and oppressed, and they cry out. The first time that we see this word, sa'ak, is with Sodom and Gomorrah. Look in, uh, in Genesis 18. In Genesis 18, 20, it says, Then the Lord said, The outcry, the sa'ak, against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. So we see this word used twice here. 
When we think of Sodom and Gomorrah, we have certain sins that we usually attribute to those cities. And so when you're thinking about the outcry that has gone out to the Lord, that's causing him to send angels to come and inspect if it really is as bad as the cry that he's hearing. We don't actually see until Ezekiel 16. I know we're doing a lot of turning. Y'all bear with me here. Go to Ezekiel 16 and look at this. We don't find out what the outcry was about until we get to Ezekiel 16, 49. Yes, ma'am. Y'all say there when you're there. Gonna shake off the dust. Justin Johnson. We love you, Justin. We love you, buddy. Verse 49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. So we see that Sodom and Gomorrah was afflicting the poor and needy. Once again, we see the Lord does not ignore the cry of the afflicted. But what's so scary about what we read in Nehemiah 5? We understand the idea of being afflicted and oppressed from the outside. But what do we do when the affliction and the oppression is coming from among us? This is our refuge. Right? This is the family of God. When we come in here, this is where we should be safe. When we gather together, we're safe. We're among brothers and sisters. This is our family. But what do you do when the oppression and the affliction is coming from within the family? There are people that are being afflicted. We're going to jump around the message here. I'm just going to abandon all structure right now. There are people in church that are afflicted right now. And some of the judgments that we see falling down on churches is coming because the afflicted from within are crying out. It's happening. In each case where we're finding these things, we won't name any ministries, but in each case what's happening is there are people that are coming forward with things and they just won't be quiet, will they? They keep coming forward with new information and then more people come forward and more people and this is going on behind the scenes and this is going on behind the scenes and then I was also a victim and I also and the cry of the afflicted is getting louder and louder and louder and there is no effort that can suppress the cry of the afflicted that's coming from within the church. They won't be quiet. The afflicted will not be quiet. And it breaks our heart when we see that happening because we know that, hey, this is the family of God. This is the hope for the world. We don't want that happening. We don't want to see our brothers and sisters and those who are walking this journey with us go through that. We don't want this message being projected out to the world. That's not what we were put here for. And so we see that and we're torn because while, yes, the, br the bride does need to be purified, the church needs to be purified, it also breaks our heart when judgment comes 
doesn't it? And I want to tell you the times that we're living in now, the afflicted are crying out. The Sa'ak is coming forth and God will not ignore it. And so the same thing was happening in Nehemiah's day. The people were crying out because they were being oppressed. I want to bring up two words. These two words are opportunism and exploitation. I have little slides that I made. I'm not a great artist. So I stole this picture and wrote the word on top of it and made a whole new piece of art. I don't know if that's the way copyright works. And if I need to pay $4 for this thing, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so there are people sitting on this wagon right here. And you got one guy. Someone tell me what's wrong. Y'all talk to me. What's wrong with this picture? They're not helping him. They don't have faces. Where'd their feet go? It's good. You know, they're not from the arising church because they're not all wearing red flannel shirts. Plus, do you know what that would look like if that was here? There'd be five people dragging a cart. That's what it would be. Opportunism looks for something that's happening and sees a way that you can be advantaged, that you can receive something, that you can get something. Opportunism is looking and seeing something going on and going, ooh, I'd like some of that, right? Opportunism is looking for a way to be advantaged regardless of principle. That's the caveat that goes on the end of it. So you're looking for a way to be advantaged. Something's happening and you enjoy it regardless of principle. For instance, opportunism would be if someone was walking along the street, they had a briefcase full of cash. The briefcase fell, the cash spilled out and everybody went running and grabbing for the money. Now, on one hand, someone can look at that and say, free money floating in the air and start grabbing money. Another person could look at that and say, oh no, that man has lost his money. I have to help him get it back. Opportunism says, today's my lucky day. Money has fallen into my lap. But the godly heart says, oh no, something bad has happened to someone. I should help ease their burden. Do you see? All right, now let's look at exploitation. It's a little bit different. So you see, these are children and they're building bricks. So children can't fend for themselves. Sometimes they can argue, sometimes they can complain. But if you come and by force or with threats of violence, right, or you take them away from their home or their place of safety and refuge, and you take them somewhere else and you force them to do what you want them to do, it's easy to exploit children. And many people do it all around the world. It's happening even in our own country. Exploitation is not just seeing an opportunity to be advantaged regardless of principle. It is seeking out to establish that opportunity. Do you see the difference? 
Opportunism is, here's this thing that's happening in front of me. I think I'll take advantage of it. Exploitation is seeking out who you might take advantage of. Do you see that? So the first one to come is opportunism. The next to come would be exploitation. Opportunism might be, let's say, uh, let's say you've got a job and you're a project manager, right? Let's hit close to home for just a second, right? Maybe you've been in this situation. You're a project manager and no, let's say you're, you're uh, the owner of something that's being built. Okay, so you're the owner of something that's being built and you have a project manager. Now, you know the project manager is able to give you a cheaper price because he's going to hire people who are here illegally and then pay them a fraction of what the work is actually worth. As the owner of the house, that's opportunistic. You would say then that the project manager is actually exploiting and the owner of the building would be the one who is uh, uh, exhibiting opportunism. Do you see that? And so he's kind of passing on the dirty work. But would both be responsible in the eyes of God? Yes, because this is unrighteous behavior. So we see opportunism and exploitation. Opportunism comes first, but it leads to exploitation. And let's talk about this a little more through the text. Let's keep reading in Nehemiah 5. In verse 6, when I heard their outcry and these charges, I was very angry. I pondered them in my mind and then accused the nobles and officials. I told them, you are exacting usury from your own countrymen. So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. Now, let me give you a little bit of insight Nehemiah actually paid from his own money for some people who were enslaved in Babylon because they didn't have enough money or they found themselves in debt and enslaved to the people of Babylon. So Nehemiah used his money and his wealth to purchase those who were enslaved to set them free. Well, now they're back in Jerusalem and people that were purchased by Nehemiah were now enslaved again. But this time it was not by some foreign ungodly power. It was by people who were a part of the family. How could you be doing this? So I called together a large meeting to deal with them and said, as far as possible, we have bought back our Jewish brothers who were sold to the Gentiles. And now you are selling your brothers only for them to be sold back to us. They kept quiet because they could find nothing to say. So I continued, what you are doing is not right. Shouldn't you walk in the fear of our God to avoid the reproach of our Gentile enemies? I and my brothers and my men are also lending to the people money and grain, but let the exacting of usury stop. Give back to them immediately their fields, vineyards, olive groves, and houses, and also the usury you are charging them, the hundredth part of the money, grain, new wine, and oil. So 1% per month or 12% per annum for those of you who like finances. They were charging them interest. 
They were exacting usury from their brothers. Now, the logical mind might say, well, hey, if they need a little bit of financial help, right, and I can give that to them, and in exchange, I ask for a little bit in return, then isn't that a two-way street? Isn't that give a little, take a little? Isn't that, isn't, aren't we exchanging here in this moment? But the problem is, that was against the law that God had given them of how they were supposed to govern themselves. Let's go to Leviticus. Leviticus 25. Yeah, y'all say there when you're there. All right, Leviticus 25. We're going to start in verse 35. If one of your countrymen becomes poor and is unable to support himself among you, help him as you would an alien or a temporary resident so he can continue to live among you. Do not take interest of any kind from him, but fear your God so that your countrymen may, be, may continue to live among you. You must not lend him money at interest or sell him food at a profit. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If one of your countrymen becomes poor among you and sells himself to you, do not make him work as a slave. He is to be treated as a hired worker or a temporary resident among you. He is to work for you until, you until the year of Jubilee. Then he and his children are to be released, and he will go back to his own clan and to the property of his forefathers. Because the Israelites are my servants, whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. Nehemiah, up until this point, haven't we seen that he's been a rule follower? Haven't we seen that Nehemiah has literally let the word of God dictate what the next move should be over the last several weeks? So once again, Nehemiah finds himself in a position where the people are not doing what the word of God says. And so he uses as his standard the word of God to help correct them properly. Now, why is this so important? Well, because even though it sounds logical for them to simply say, look, I'm doing this good for my brother. Therefore, I make some profit back. That should be okay. The family of God was supposed to be different. What's interesting is in Deuteronomy 23, 19 through 20, the word talks about charging interest. You can charge interest to a foreigner, but not to a brother. Charging interest was not something that was ungodly to a foreigner. But when it came to the people of God, we treat each other differently. This was supposed to be a picture for the world to see. When you belong to the family of God, life is better. That's what it was supposed to be. Picture me telling my little girl, Sweetie, when you belong to the family of God, life is so much better. And then her brain's going, okay, that's what reality is. That's what the truth is. When you belong to the family of God, life is better than if you're on the outside of the family of God. That's what we should be here in this place. There is a uh, movie called Amistad. Old movie. Anybody seen it? Amistad? In it, the people from Africa who were being traded as slaves referred to the white people, the Christians that were there, they referred to them as the miserable ones. 
because they always had frowns on their faces and their faces were always like this, the miserable ones. The way they appeared to the outsiders was that they were miserable. <laughs> Here in the family of God, we should be the most joyous. We should have lives that are the most full. We should be taking care of each other better than anyone else takes care of each other. There should be no poor or needy among us. Everyone should be taken care of. There should be no needs that go unmet here in the family of God. It's supposed to be different than our relationships with people outside the family of God. This is the reality. Picture us all as little children and our father is telling us this. Hey, in my family, this is the way we do things. This is the way we treat each other in my family. This is your identity. You're, you should have security when you come into the family of God. You should feel secure. You should know that these people protect you. These people fight for you. These people look out for you. They encourage you. They build you up according to your needs here in the body, here in the family. Am I tracking? I think Mike would say, I'm preaching better than y'all are amening right now. Come on. Opportunism, the taking of opportunities as and when they were arise, regardless of planning or principle. Exploitation, the action or fact of treating someone unfairly in order to benefit from their work. In this family, there should be no opportunism and absolutely no exploitation. We don't take advantage of each other here in this family, in the family of God. We don't take advantage of each other here. When we see that someone is hurting or when we see that someone is desperate or in need, we help them. We actually disadvantage ourselves to bring them up. What does this mean? This means, here, Lily, come here real quick. So Lily, stand at the bottom. Stand at the bottom, step right here. So now let's say that this is my position in life. Let's pretend that what this is, is I actually have excess. Let's say that I have more than what I need each day. Now in America, sometimes we can forget how to actually gauge what we need. It's hard for us to understand, well, what do I actually need? Because sometimes I need Starbucks. Does that count? I don't know. <laughs> it's hard for us to gauge our needs because we can be detached from them, right? Let's say that Lily doesn't have what she needs and I have excess. What I typically do is I look at my excess and then I think about how to spend it on myself to better myself or to give myself more comfort. Don't, don't I? That's what I do. Y'all are being mean to me. It's what we do. We'll spend our excess on ourselves to continue bettering ourselves. And so Lily may be standing here, but I'm actually working. And here's my goal. My goals in life don't have anything to do with her. But here in this country, so often I'm looking for a way to do this, aren't I? And then what I'll say is, Lily, buy my book and I'll tell you how to get to the top of the stool, of your own stool, won't I? This is what we do. 
We think that this is what people need, that when we exalt ourselves and perfect that image, we can sell to these people who are down here. And then what little she does have, Lily can pay me. And in reality, there's no stool. This doesn't actually work for her because she's completely different, right? And so what I'm selling her doesn't actually work. But at least I got her money while she was desperate. Exploitation. Do you see that? Opportunistic exploitation. Do you see that? Whereas the kingdom of God is built this way. What I might say is, here, Lil, come on. This would be the kingdom of God. This is a picture of the kingdom of God. Do you see? Doesn't that make her so happy? All right, I'm done. The kingdom of God has me coming down to lift her up. What we often think is we should be equal. Why don't we both stand on this step here? That would be equal. We don't want anybody to be doing better than us, or we don't want to be less than or not doing as well as someone else. But the kingdom of God is actually about putting someone up here. Or better yet, coming down here for me and lowering myself. That's the kingdom of God. And he started it out that way. He wrote this so that we could learn how to be that way because what comes naturally to us is standing on the stool. That's what comes naturally to us. And then touting how we climbed up there ourselves, right? And trying to profit off other people wanting to be where we are. Isn't that, isn't that true? But that's not the way that God intended his people to be. Let's keep reading in Nehemiah. Amen. So they said, okay, we'll give it back. This is verse 12. And we will not demand anything more from them. We will do as you say. Then I summoned the priests and made the nobles and officials take an oath to do what they had promised. I also shook out the folds of my robe and said, in this way, may God shake out of his house and possessions every man who does not keep this promise. So may such a man be shaken out and emptied. Boy, that's a big deal. Wouldn't that be super uncomfortable if I was like, everyone stand up, we're going to take an oath to never take advantage of anyone else again. Wouldn't that be super awkward? No. <laughs> we'll just let our yes be yes and our no be no, right? Come on. At this, the whole assembly said, amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. Wow. And heaven comes to earth. Moreover, from the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, he originally came to be what? To restore the people. But he did whatever was needed of him. And it came to pass that Nehemiah was needed as a governor. He started out building a wall, but he was appointed governor in the land of Judah until his 32nd year. So 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allotted to the governors. But the earlier governors, those preceding me, placed a heavy burden on the people and took 40 shekels of silver from them in addition to food and wine. Their assistants also lorded it over the people. But out of reverence for God, I did not act like that. 
Instead, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. Now, what could Nehemiah have done in response to his appointment as governor? He could have seen this is the favor of God. Wow, God, I never intended to get my own stool, but now you've provided me with one. Praise be to the Lord. He's given me a stool that I can stand on. I have been appointed governor. Now bring me the food and the wine that I deserve as governor. And he sits and he eats and he gets fat and he enjoys all the produce of the land. While all the lilies are down here. Right? And ain't got nothing. We're stirring the coals right now, aren't we? But what's so important for us to get is that the way of the godly was not to promote themselves. What did Nehemiah do? Nehemiah worked along with everyone else. Nehemiah didn't take his position and use it as a justification for excess and luxury and to abstain from the work of God. Instead, he gave up his status and worked right alongside with the people. Who does that sound like? Philippians 2 says that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. He became a servant. This is the heart of God, but it doesn't come naturally to us. We have to be told what our identity is. We have to be told who we really are. Because do you know, the opportunist is driven by this idea that they don't have what they need. The one who exploits is driven by this idea that they need more. But we as the people of God don't give in to that. We recognize not that he will provide, but that he has provided. Pastor Nick was talking this morning it's a little bit of a nuance, a little bit of a difference. The idea that he will provide versus that he has provided, isn't it? He will provide. I know he will. He hasn't provided yet, but he will provide. No, no, no. People of God, sons and daughters of the living God, bride of Christ, family of God. He has provided. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. There's an old rabbinic par uh, principle that says he who has bread on his plate today should not worry about where bread will come from tomorrow. Do you have bread on your plate today? Is anyone in here not sure of where lunch will come from today? Not saying you don't know where you're going to pick because there's so many options. I'm saying you have no means to feed yourself because even if that's true, you're in the family of God. And people don't go hungry here. You don't have a place to sleep. You're in the family of God. And people don't go homeless here. That should be the way that it is. We don't promote ourselves and fight like the world fights. We don't pursue what the world pursues. Our treasures are not worldly treasures. This is the heart behind these laws. Like don't charge interest to one of your brothers. Don't, don't try and profit when someone is in need or poor among you. 
Don't look, that's not what you do. That comes from a poverty mentality. That comes from a worldly mentality that you don't have what you need. Be secure in your identity. You are a child of God. You have what you need. Now, does this mean we can't make our needs known to each other? No, 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 that's not what it means. What it means is those who can take advantage, those who can exploit, don't do it. Don't do it. Look for ways to give of yourself rather than take from others. That's the point that we're making this morning. So ask yourself, am I opportunistic? Do I exploit others? So if you look for ways to avoid serving here at this church, you might be an exploitative opportunist. If you are here to build your business, you might be an exploitative opportunity, right? If you're here because it's better for your business or you go to a church because it's better for your business and you're just visiting here today, you might be an exploitative opportunist. Don't you know that even looking at pornography is exploitation, opportunistic exploitation. Do you know that? We have to look for these things in our lives and realize this is not how the sons and daughters of the living God act. This is not how the family of God acts. We have enough. We've been given what we need. We don't need to take from other people and take advantage of other people. That mentality has got to go from inside the body, right? Why? Because if we do that to people, if we oppress the people, then the afflicted will cry out and the Lord will hear their cry and will bring judgment. That's what's happening all around us. That's what's happening. For us not to see this in our own backyard or for, not to, for us not to talk about this when it's happening in our own backyard would be a missed opportunity. It would be a missed opportunity for us not to talk about what's going on in our own backyard and the churches around us and to see what God is doing and to recognize if we don't humble ourselves and receive God's grace to be able to move forward righteously, that same judgment can fall on us. And can I share this with you? In our past as a church, judgment has fallen on us. So there's a word called Zedekah. You guys have heard us talk about it, right? Can you throw that word on the screen? While she's throwing that word on the screen, he is throwing that word, very much he. Please turn to Luke 3. In Luke 3, in verse 10... John the Baptist is preparing the way. And he is talking to people because he's got something to say. You see the word Zedekah up on the screen? Righteous behavior. When we think of righteousness, righteousness is something that we receive from Christ when we choose by faith to believe and what was given to us by grace. Okay? 
We're saved by grace through faith, and we are credited with his righteousness. Now that we receive righteousness, we go and promote righteousness in the earth. That is the way that we repair the earth. That's the way that we bring the kingdom of God to this earth. In Luke 3, John the Baptist is talking to people about how to bring righteousness to the earth in their, day, in their daily lives. So the people say in verse 10, what should we do then? John answered, the man with two tunics should share with him who has none. And the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Why? Because what were they doing? Extorting, profiting off of their brothers. Don't collect any more than you were required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Boy, if we were expecting some earth-shattering revelation from John the Baptist, you might be disappointed. But what's great is that the message hasn't changed. Do righteous behavior to each other. That's what he's telling him. Be righteous towards each other. Be godly towards each other. Remember, you are the family of God. Watch how you're treating each other. Don't take advantage like people do in the world. Just because you might see your colleagues or other people in your profession or trade doing it doesn't mean that you should do it. You do what God has told you to do. That's what he's reminding them of. So they say, oh, in this complicated world, John the Baptist. I don't know if that's what they called him in that moment. In this complex world where things have changed, we're ruled by an oppressive government. You don't understand. There's not a wealthy person among us. What should we do, John the Baptist, when the Old Testament doesn't apply to us anymore? What should we do? It says, do what he's been telling you to do from the very beginning, when he made you a people. He has not changed. You do not change. Look at Philippians 2. How are y'all feeling? We together? Look at verse three. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. By the way, where you find those, you find every evil practice. Selfish ambition and vain conceit. Pause for a second and think about what selfish ambition means. To be ambitious for yourself. To look how you can get what's coming to you. To look how you can advance yourself, promote yourself, further yourself. Selfish ambition. Think about what vain conceit is. To be conceited. To think of yourself in a certain way. For us to become discouraged about the state of things, we need only look as far as social media to understand what vain conceit is. <laughs> Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider others the same as yourself. 
Consider others better than yourself. Now, when we think of love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, we think equal. But here, it seems to contradict. So is there a contradiction in Scripture? Should we treat them the same as ourselves, or should we treat them better than ourselves? Better than ourselves. Let me tell you why. First of all, Jesus set the example. He didn't just treat us like he treated himself. He treated us better than he treated himself. That was the example that he set. But the way that we treat ourselves is we take care of ourselves when we need something. We love ourselves by recognizing what we need when we need it. And we give ourselves what we need, don't we? We recognize when we need something. And so this verse is saying that if in a moment you could have something or they could have something, you impoverish yourself in the moment to make them better than you. To lift them up higher than you. Because you are looking out for their needs, not just your own. And when you see their needs, you say, oh, no, no, no. I have what I need here, please. No, 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 no. I'm provided for. I'm taken care of here. You have this. Now, what might scare us as I'm mentioning that? What if I'm the only one doing it? And everybody takes advantage of me. Anybody else think that in the moment? Can we be honest for just say, yeah. What if people take advantage of me? That's fear. Jesus didn't let fear rule over him. He obeyed the will of the father all the way to the cross, even unto death. That's what this passage is about. He didn't give way to fear. He was obedient unto death, even death where he was falsely accused, treated as a criminal. He wasn't afraid. He entrusted himself to the one who could save him completely. We have to do the same. That's our mentality. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So how can we do this? We've been hitting a lot of practical things today. I want to hit just a few, a few more. Don't assume that your time, money, energy, thoughts, and opinions are more valuable than your neighbor's. Let me say that one more time. Don't assume that your time, money, energy, thoughts, and opinions are more valuable than your neighbors. I'm thinking right now, I assume that my time is more valuable than Nick's when I show up five minutes late to our meeting. I'm serious. For me, that's putting my own interests above his. That's looking out for myself and not considering him. I want to correct that. Nick, forgive me. Amen. This is the way that the family of God treats each other. When making a decision, consider not only how that decision will affect your own interests, but also how it will affect the interests of others. So are you opportunistic? When you walk into an event or a meeting or a gathering, do you ever give thought to the setup that went into that meeting, into that gathering? Do you give thought to the chairs that got set up? 
Do you give thought to the cost of the coffee or the toilet paper? Do you give thought to the wear and tear that those meetings or gatherings take on the place? When you leave, do you give thought to how it will get cleaned up? Do you give thought to whether or not they have creamer the next morning for coffee? <laughs> Coconut milk creamer. <laughs> it's our attitude when we're together. Do we give thought to what it takes for someone to do what God is calling them to do? Do we give thought to how we can refresh others? Do you regularly give thought? How can I lift my brother or sister up right now? How can I put them on better footing than even me? How can I put them in a better situation than even I'm in? And lift them up and make them even better. Lord, show me how to do that. We were going to go off on different tangents today and we were going to talk about Slavery now and slavery then and the way that that was exploitation of the worst kind. We're going to we were going to talk about the ways that our country has even been affected to this day off of the backs of those we exploited. We're going to talk. We were going to talk about opportunism in all its different forms all around the world. I think it's better if we just start here. That might be too much for us today, but if we can get this right. If we won't be opportunistic or exploitative in this place or seek to take advantage of others, but instead consider others interests above our own, then we will be like Nehemiah, like Jesus. Let's finish up Nehemiah. In verse 16, Nehemiah said, I devoted myself to the work on this wall. All my men were assembled there for the work. We did not acquire any land. His goal wasn't to be there to be comforted. His goal was to restore the people of God. Furthermore, 150 Jews and officials ate at my table, as well as those who came to us from the surrounding nations. Their fellowship with the body budget was high. They had a lot of eating out that they did. Each day, one ox, six choice sheep, and some poultry were prepared for me. And every 10 days, an abundant supply of wine of all kinds. In spite of all this, I never demanded the food allotted to the governor because the demands were heavy on these people. Remember me with favor, oh my God, for all I have done for those people. Nehemiah reminds us in the end, he's like, I'm not looking for any promotion among the people. I'm not looking for praise among the people, I'm saying, God, you alone, that's, that's who I'm looking to. Would you remember me with favor for all that I've done for these people? We don't serve in here each other or take care of each other. And then over time, build up resentment because it's not being reciprocated. We serve to the point of death saying, Lord, I'm entrusting myself to you. That's where we can fall short. We all can get excited and be like, all right, we all in agreement? Everybody, we're all going to do this, right? I'm not going to go out there and start serving all y'all and then everybody's going to bail on me. I'm going to be the only one taking care of people. No, 
you determine in your heart, wait a second, this is the way of the family of God of which I am a part. I am secure in my identity. Therefore, I will serve without expecting anything in return because that's what the Lord has done for me and I am doing it as unto him. As we each take that attitude, watch as heaven comes to earth. Watch as the people outside the family go, hey, can I be a part? You, you guys have, have room for me? You, you think I could come? Maybe I could come and be a part? Of course. I don't, need, I don't need to turn evangelism into a sales pitch when the reality of the family of God is so beautiful that people on the outside are longing to come in and be a part. That's what we're fighting for in here. Guys, we're doing a good job. Y'all are doing a good job. Y'all love each other genuinely. And the grace of God is on this church. We're living by faith. This is living by faith. Is it not to look after someone else's interest above your own? Is that not living by faith? That's an adventure. Try it and you'll see what I mean. We're going to live by faith in here and we're going to love each other well. Let's stand together. I want you to take a moment in this silence and just think. Ask the Lord, Lord, have I been opportunistic here? Have I been looking for ways just to advantage myself? Lord, is my mind on how I can better myself here by getting something from others regardless of principle? Or am I seeking to serve like Nehemiah? Father, have I exploited people? Have I taken advantage of other people to prop myself up? Maybe you even have some fears about what it would mean for you or your business if you were to stop exploiting people. Maybe you're afraid of what it would mean for your comfort if you were to stop being opportunistic. Right now, I would challenge you, just let go of your fear. Recognize that that is not the way of the people of God. That's not how we treat each other. And that that's really only hurting us. And we let it go. And let's determine in our hearts today, going forward, we won't exploit, we won't take advantage. We'll behave righteously towards each other because we're secure in our identity and we know who our Father is. So Heavenly Father, I thank you for my friends. I thank you for my family. I thank you, God, for what you are doing in this body. I'm proud to be a part of this body. I'm proud to be associated with these people. I thank you, Lord, for all the people who are continually giving of themselves and laying their lives down so that your people can be restored, so that the work of God can move forward. God, help us when we need rest to find our rest in you. Lord, help us to have a, a good understanding of your grace. Help us, Lord, to know your love, to know your mercy, to know you as a refuge, to know this family as a refuge. Jesus, let that be our reality.
And let it be so desirable to those who are hurting and broken outside these walls, Lord, that they could find a refuge in the family of God as well. We love you, Jesus. We pray for our brothers and ministries, Lord, who are going through hard times right now. Let's just begin to intercede for these other ministries. Jesus, we just ask for your mercy in dealing with your people. Lord, we thank you that you are so precise in your judgment. You are able to judge wickedness and preserve righteousness. We ask for the preservation of these ministries, God. Lord, that even though there is a humbling going on, Lord, that you would preserve a remnant. God, and that your name would shine brighter than ever from these ministries, Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that you know how to get glory out of your people. And so, God, would you do that with these people? Lord, would you forgive us if we've slandered? Or, Lord, if we've uh, rejoiced at the falling of any of these people? Lord, let our hearts be pure. Show us how to love rightly, how to intercede for these people, for these ministries. And, Lord, keep us humble as we walk with you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have provided everything we need. We will not be driven by fear, but we will live confidently and securely.